Glad I've been waiting for this call. Hold on. Hello? You sure? Did you look inside? You, you can't find him anywhere. All right. Well, thanks. I appreciate you calling back. Yeah, God bless you, brother. Bye-bye. That was the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Jerusalem. The tomb is empty. He said he sent three women down there, and uh, they came back and reported. Some of his elders didn't believe him. Um, <laughs> by the way, there is a Calvary Chapel, uh, uh, Jerusalem, by the way. Uh, oh, what a blessed day it is. And we're so glad that you came to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ with us. Uh, you are so welcome, and we are glad you are here with us. If you will, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And the title of my message this morning is Sunrise, and this is the second part from our Good Friday service, which we've entitled Sunset. A very interesting article was released just earlier this week stating that about 60% of Americans will possibly, it's a prediction, attend church this year for Easter Sunday. That's a huge number. But based on last year's data, we find out that just a handful of those people, almost one-fourth of them, I should say, uh, didn't really understand what the resurrection Easter is all about. They didn't really get it. They knew it was important to the Christian faith. They knew that it was significant that two billion people around the world this day would take an opportunity to remember and to uh, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they didn't fully comprehend all of the details that went along with it. It reminds me of that story I heard of a Sunday school teacher who on Easter Sunday, when she was asking the children of her class, now, does anyone here happen to know what Easter is all about? Resurrection Sunday is all about. And there was one little girl that was always very enthusiastic. She always went and sought extra credit in the class, and she threw up her hand immediately to hope that the teacher would call on her. And as the teacher waited patiently for hopefully somebody else to answer, well, no one else raised their hand in the class that day, and as the little girl was just now standing on top of the table with her hand raised, asking desperately that she be called upon, when she was called upon, she addressed in a very, very uh, dignified manner, Teacher, this is the day that Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. And the teacher was like, oh, that's fantastic that you would know that. That's wonderful. That's great. And the little girl responded, yes. And if he sees his shadow, he goes back in for seven more days. <laughs> Not quite there yet. You got part of it, but not all of it. As I stated Friday, as, as a pastor, I'm always asked around this time, you know, well, this must be the busiest time of the year for you. This must be a, a, a really uh, complicated and stressful time for you as a pastor. Well, no, not really. God did all the, all the hard work. I just have to tell people about it. 
But again, it comes down to the fact that many people, they don't fully understand what this time of the year represents, what this all means, why it's important and significant to Christianity. I'm going to be straight up honest with you from the very beginning, and as a pastor, I'd hope you, <laughs> I hope you would want me to be. Paul said very clearly that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ has not taken place and did not occur, we might as well go to brunch now and beat the crowds because the Christian faith is nothing apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He made it abundantly clear that his preaching was in vain if Jesus had not rose again. He made it clear that if Jesus has not risen from the grave, we are still dead in our trespasses and sin before God. If Jesus Christ had not raised from the dead, then we are to be pitied, for our faith is futile. And those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ, have simply perished. And you and I who dedicate our lives to the following of Jesus Christ as a believer in Jesus Christ, well, we should be pitied most of all for simply wasting our time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is key crucial to everything that we hold dear as Christians. The grave that could not hold him, the tomb that echoes his presence, for he is not there. For you and I today is the glorious hope of the eternal promises in which he has made to you and I as his followers and believers in Jesus Christ. I'd like to direct your attention to Acts chapter 2, if I may. For in it, we find Peter sharing for the very first time to people who are asking and criticizing concerning the events that had just recently taken place. They're curious to know what is happening and they're critiquing why it is happening. And as a result, we get this bullet point, we get this moment where Peter, at a summary point within his message to these people, gives us a snapshot of what Christianity is all about. This is really the very first time that the Christian message is now being presented to the world who does not know and believe in Jesus Christ. And it is a great little synopsis of everything we hold dear as believers, as Christians who follow Christ. In verse 22, let us pick it up there. And we looked at 22 and 23 Friday, and you can hear that message online if you'd like. As Pentecost is now taking place in Jerusalem, Jerusalem is now swollen to twice its population. As Jewish people from all over the land of Israel have come now to celebrate this incredible feast of Pentecost. The disciples are in Jerusalem also, and they are in an upper room. And as they are waiting on the coming of the Holy Spirit, and as they are praying, the Spirit of God arrives and falls upon them through the mighty rushing wind in which they heard his announcement and then verified by a flame of fire, a unique event in the Christian life, a unique time where the Spirit now fills the individuals who are in Christ. 
And as a result, they came out onto the rooftops. Now, the rooftops were often used as balconies and patios at that time. And they began to speak in other tongues, other languages specifically. Unbeknownst to themselves, for they were simply Galileans and did not have uh, the expertise or the linguistic knowledge to speak in these other tongues, they began to speak in other tongues and praising God for all the wonderful works that he had done. And the people in the crowds there in Jerusalem from all of these different regions began to hear the wonderful works of God spoken in their own personal language and began to wonder what in the world is going on. For these men are simply Galileans. Galilean fishermen. They should never be able to speak to us in our language. And of course, they concluded, and theologically, uh, soundly, they concluded, well, they must be drunk. Hitting it a little early. Tapping the sauce a little afternoon. And as a result, they dismissed what was going on. Peter then launches into this explanation to explain to them why this is taking place, why this is transpiring. And as a result, he now comes to this first bullet point where he introduces the gospel to them. He introduces this idea of Christianity and what it is all about. And first and foremost, we find that it's wholly and solely uh, dependent upon the person and the character of Jesus Christ. He says here in verse 22, "'Men of Israel, hear these words.'" Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. You remember this. This is 40 days removed, 40 days removed from the crucifixion. They remember the three-year life of Jesus and all that he had done. The mighty works were the supernatural miracles that were wrought through the hands of Christ. The wonders were the incredible signs that proclaimed his coming, such as the star at his birth or the darkness at his death. And then there were the signs. And here Peter is referring to the prophecies that were fulfilled concerning his first coming. 333 some prophecies of the Old Testament confirmed before them in their myths. You were there, you saw it, you understood it. Focusing on the person of Jesus Christ, he was no mere man. He was no simple prophet. He wasn't a good teacher. He was God in flesh. And in verse 23, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan of the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. From the very beginning, this was God's plan. This is what God intended. And it was your hands and your choice to have him killed. And then I should say subjected to the lawless hands of the Roman Empire. For it was these same people, I believe, that were crying out before Pontius Pilate and saying, Give us Barabbas and have him crucified before us. Cutting to the heart, cutting to the chase, showing them their guilt before their God and showing how they had rejected the Messiah in which they had waited for for so long. And this was the plan of God from the very beginning. And this morning we come now 
from the sunset to the sunrise as we move into verse 24. And God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. The tomb is empty. For God has raised him up. All that man could do to suppress this one individual, a carpenter from Nazareth who was tried three times before the religious leaders, before Herod, before Pilate, and each and every time they found him innocent. The only charge that they could bring against him was his claim to be the king of the Jews, which if false, it would have condemned Christ as an insurrectionist and one who looked to overthrow the Roman government. But if true, then Christ stood before his accusers blameless, which he was. It didn't matter what man threw at him. It didn't uh, matter at the injustice in which occurred in his illegal trial. It didn't matter the false guilt that they hung upon his necks. God raised him up. It is an exclamation point of God's sovereignty in the world. It doesn't matter what man does. God's plans and purposes are always going to be perfectly fulfilled and they will never be thwarted or disrupted by the plans of man. God is in control. Even as we often feel the world is spinning out of control, God is in control. Now, when I say that, I often am challenged or asked the question because for many, they don't understand what God is doing in the chaos that surrounds us. Why are all of these things happening? You know, why is the injustice and the evil continuing to reign? Why is the corruption so prevalent? Why doesn't God do something? He did. He sent his only begotten son. And the Bible tells us that before his second coming, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But this is where we rejoice. As a believer in Jesus Christ, this world is the worst it's ever going to be for us. It's only going to get better. And we can rejoice in that. We can celebrate that as Christians. However, though, those apart from Christ, those who do not believe, those who do not have a relationship with him, this is the best it's ever going to be. It's only going to get worse. And that's what Jesus came to save us from. Our problem as individuals, as human beings, is an issue of perspective. We just don't simply understand what God is doing because of the perspective in which we have upon the circumstances and the situation. For example, the cross of Jesus Christ. As they saw him hanging there and and as he was being nailed to that cross beam and then lifted and then nailed his feet, nailed to the center beam of that cross, the world rejoiced. The religious leaders laughed and mocked him. They thought once and for all, this man who has caused us such difficulty over the last three years, challenging our power and our authority, he's finally done away with. There were others who saw the cross of Jesus Christ and began to weep, thinking that all that this man had started is now coming to a tragic end. 
And there were others who just simply did not understand what was taking place before them, but thought to themselves, well, if he's being crucified, he must be wrong. That was their perspective. Even the disciples didn't get it right at that time. They feared and they ran away at that time, fearing for their own safety, their own personal lives. That's our perspective of the cross. That's what we see when we see him hanging there in agony and in pain and in suffering as his life is dripping from his hands and feet and as he is trying and struggling each breath that he seems to desire to take. We think this is all over. It's a tragedy. But from God's perspective, this is it. He is conquering death for the very first time. He is overthrowing all that Satan had done. He's beginning a new work in this particular world that has been subjected to death and sin for over 2,000 years to the point that Christ had first come. There's our perspective in the situations, and then there is God's perspective in the situation. I recently read an article of a man who was set to meet his wife at, I believe it was a restaurant. But when he got there, he was shocked to discover that his wife was laying on the ground and a man was kneeling over her and had a knife and was beginning to place it towards her throat and he tackled the man, thinking that his wife was going to be killed at his, underneath his hand only to discover that his wife was choking and the man was a paramedic about to perform a tracheotomy. Often it comes down to our perspective and the way we see things. And I will tell you, there will be circumstances in our lives that we don't understand this side of heaven. We just don't get it. We can't connect all the dots. This is where we have to trust God. This is where we have to understand who God is by the revelation that he has given us through his word. This is where we have to know the heart and the character of God to understand what God is doing and rest on the promises that he has given us that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. But notice with me, not only did God raise him up to show his ultimate demonstration of sovereignty, but God raised him up to confirm that he was the Son of God. For Jesus stated in Mark 8.31, and as he began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was. And if that in Mark 8.31 is fulfilled properly, which it has been, everything else that Jesus Christ has said must be weighted in the light of that reality. He said he was going to arise on the third day. He rose on the third day. We need to look at everything else he has said with different eyes and with different weight, especially when he makes this claim. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The resurrection substantiates everything that Jesus did and said up until the point of his death. But Jesus also said in Matthew 7, 21, 
that many will stand before me and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done many things in your name? And they go on to list the different things that they believe that they did in his name to merit righteousness before God. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. There are many people today who believe that their religious acts, that their goodness is going to outweigh their wrong and their sin before God, and that when it's all weighed in the balances that they would be found worthy of entering into the kingdom of heaven, it doesn't work that way. There's a standard for entering into the kingdom of heaven, and that standard is perfection. And each and every one of us falls greatly short of that perspective. For there is only one, one who was perfect, and that is Christ Jesus. The reason the Bible uh, gives us the uh, insight to all the failures of so many of its major characters is to highlight the realization that there's only one who is perfect, and that is Christ. The standard for entering into heaven is perfection. And you ask, well, then how can I get there? How can I have eternal life? If I can't earn it, if I can't merit it, if I can't outweigh the bad that I have done with the good that I have done, then how do we get in? It's not on your righteousness, it's on Christ's. It's not what we have done, but it's what he has done for us that matters. We need to simply believe in him. And at that moment that we believe in him and receive him as our savior, He wipes our slate clean before God the Father, past, present, and future sin. Even though practically we still sin and we're growing in to that image of Christ that God is working within us and then through us. But not only does he wash us clean, but then he drapes the robe of righteousness that Christ has provided for me. I can't earn any greater favor with God than what Christ has given me. And therefore, I simply rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I trust him for the salvation in which he has provided for me. The resurrection gives me that confidence that all that he has said and promised, I can believe and trust and will come to pass because on the third day he exited the tomb. But notice with me that Peter goes on to say that not only did God raise him up, but God loosened the pangs of death before him. In the Greek, it means this. It means God reversed the decision that man placed upon him in the judicial system in which he was subjected to. The guilt that they found Christ to have, God reversed that, demonstrating that Christ was perfectly innocent of all the charges that were uh, thrown at him and he was convicted of before man. It means that God is going to right the wrongs of not only what had happened to his only begotten son, but also all the wrong within the world. Through the loosening pangs of death, the clutches of death, God is releasing and he is changing and he is bringing into account all the injustice and corruption and everything that's been happening in the world and he is going to set all things right. God is ultimately going to deal with every injustice of the world from racial injustice to social justice, etc. 
God has promised that through the person of Jesus Christ, these things will be rectified in due time. It's not going to happen, though, until Christ comes and rules on this earth. All disease and death will be eliminated. All suffering will be eliminated. If I may, let me read these words to you of the blessed promise of Revelation. John gives us in 21 verses 1 through 5. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And notice these words. Please notice these words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will, shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And he said, who was seated on the throne, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the promise that the resurrection of Jesus Christ inaugurates for you and I. That he is going to make all things brand new. And all the corruption that is sickening our hearts and the, and the injustice that continues to go on and so forth that we see in this world, God is going to make right. I remember David in the Psalms, he would often say, Oh Lord, why do those who do not acknowledge you and believe in you seem to prosper so vividly and vibrantly, I should say? Why are they appearing to be blessed materially and with huge homes and, and livestock and everything else that anyone would want and desire in this world, but they, uh, they mock you, they frown upon you, and they, they walk away from you. And David was upset. He's like, this is wrong, man. This shouldn't be. But then God showed David what the end of these people would be. An eternity separated from him in a place of torment and pain that was created for the devil and his angels. That new life can begin in yours today. It is a blessed promise of the Christian faith. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When I first became a Christian when I was 16 years old, as many of you know, I had a very difficult childhood. I was adopted by my parents who, unfortunately, my mother was completely in bondage to alcohol. And when she became intoxicated with the alcohol, she became violent. My parents lied before judges to allow the adoption to proceed. And the home that I was brought into was chaotic and violent, to say the least. And as I grew up in that violent home, I grew angrier and angrier and angrier as a teenager. I couldn't believe the injustice that had occurred to me. 
I couldn't believe what had happened. And then I discovered when I was in my teens that I was adopted from a place called The Cradle in Evanston, Illinois. And shortly before my adoption, a famous individual named Bob Hope adopted two children before me. I could have been Eric Hope. I missed it by this much. And I said, Lord, you know, I, don't, I, 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 I always believed God was there, but my anger was shadowing my heart and my mind, and I was becoming a problem person. I was running wild. I was absolutely on a pathway of incarceration. Let's just say it that way. In fact, three out of my five best friends that I grew up with have already served prison time. But as a result, when I was 16 years old, the God of the universe decided to reach down and get a hold of me through a biker who believed in Jesus. And he grabbed me by the shirt and put me against the wall and he lovingly told me that I needed Jesus, but I was about this far off the ground. I was already halfway to heaven, so I might as well accept him. As I began to grow in my new Christian faith, I started to see the anger dissipate. I started to see the joy begin to blossom. I had a peace that I never had before, and my circumstances at home hadn't changed, but my heart was changing. I was changing from the inside. And the parents who I hated, I now began to love, and I didn't understand it all. And I was progressing very nicely until one day I was driving to church and I heard a prominent Christian psychologist on the radio talking about the effects of growing up in an alcoholic home. And he had children from an alcoholic home on his radio program and they were all talking about the uh, effects and consequences of growing up in an alcoholic home and how they, as adult individuals, carried the trauma and the devastation and the pain and the scars into their marriages, into their families. And now their marriages were suffering and their families were suffering and their kids were suffering. And as I pulled into church, I couldn't turn the radio off because I was being devastated by what I was hearing. Are you kidding me? You mean I'm never going to be able to get away from this? You mean it's going to affect my family, my parenting, my children? Because I was subjected to something that I had no choice in the matter. They brought me home. They They went to Kmart. They brought me home. And, you know, now... For the rest of my life, I have to suffer and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to affect a poor woman this way. I'm going to affect my family this way. I was devastated. And I sat in my car and I just cried. I cried like I've never cried before because I thought that I was finally free. And now this gentleman says, no, you're never going to be free. You're going to need counseling the rest of your life. And then I realized the Bible study was over and people were exiting the church. But I decided to take my Bible and to go in to ask the pastor and to talk to him. And he saw my face immediately. He saw how devastated I was. He saw what was going on. He asked me what was going on. I explained to him. And he sat me down. He says, well, you can believe that. But let me give you something better to believe. And he read to me this verse and pointed it to me in the Bible. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, and he asked me to read it, and I said, passed away. And behold, the new has come. And he asked me, do you believe that? 
You can believe what that man says or you can believe what God says. I was 19 years old. I told him, I'm going to believe what the Bible says. And do you know the effects of the alcoholic home never, ever, ever affected my marriage or my parenting ever because I believed that I was a new creation in God? Not only that, this understanding of being a new creation in God allowed me to forgive my parents for what they had done. And in 2014, my wife went over and spoke with my mom. And my mom came to saving faith in Jesus Christ and never drank again after 50 years. That's what God can do. He can make all things brand new in your life. I don't care how much you've messed it up. I don't care how far you think you have fallen. God can make all things brand new. But then Peter finishes by stating very clearly that it was impossible for him to be held by it, referring to death. See, death couldn't do it. Death had no claim upon Christ because Christ had never sinned. He was perfect before God. And because the result of sin is death, Jesus died not for his sin, but for yours and mine. And because he died for our sin and not his sin, death could not hold him. There is nothing that they could have done to keep Jesus in the tomb. There is no stone big enough for God that he cannot move it. It's interesting because Peter uses language here in the Greek to demonstrate the birth pangs of a woman who is in the end stage of labor just about, just right before the child is going to be born. And from what I have heard, I have not personally experienced this, that when that time comes, it doesn't matter where you are or how hard you try or if you've crossed your legs, that baby is coming. There is nothing that could have held Jesus in that tomb. Absolutely nothing. It was impossible for death to have any kind of hold upon him, for he had not died for his sins, but for ours. Now, many of us don't understand what that means. What does it mean that I'm a sinner? It means that you're imperfect. It means that you have done wrong either through your thoughts or through your actions. It means that you have a debt before God that you cannot pay. It means that it doesn't matter what you do through the course of your life, unless you maintain perfect perfection from the time you're born to the time you die, it's impossible to escape the grips of death. That's what sin is. It's missing the mark. When I was first saved, I was witnessing to my best friend, Dwayne. And as Dwayne, he was an archer. And he loved to shoot bow and arrows in his backyard. And he would put his target up along a row of, of shrubbery. I just wanted to use the word shrubbery. I think we need to bring that word back, shrubbery. You know. And he would shoot at the target. And he was pretty good sometimes. But as I was talking to him and witnessing to him about Jesus Christ and explaining sin to him, as he pulled back and drew on the bow, one of the arrows got away from him and flipped through the air like it was being directed by string. And then when, instead of hitting the target, it went through the bushes. And all of a sudden we heard, ow! It hit the neighbor in the leg, cutting his grass. 
I said, Dwayne, that's missing the mark. You just shot your neighbor. God was so good to give us illustrations at that time. Now, my friend didn't get saved at that moment. He did later, but the next door neighbor did because he was one step away from death. No, I'm kidding. We all miss the mark. No one is perfect before God. We are all in need of a Savior. And that Savior has been provided through the person of Jesus Christ. For it was impossible for death to hold him. He needed to break free because he had not died for the sins of his own, but for the sins of you and I. In John chapter 11, we find the one time that everybody's perspective believed that Jesus was late. For one of his friends named Lazarus was sick and ill, and he got word that his friend was sick and ill. He was the brother of Mary and Martha. And instead of going right away to spare Lazarus from dying, he waited a few more days and then took a few days to get there by just simply traveling there by walking. And now Lazarus had already died and the sisters came and ran to Jesus and said to him, oh, if you only would have been here, you could have kept him from dying. You could have spared him this pain. Now, see, that was their perspective, right? Their perspective was that it was finished. It was over. There's nothing more that can happen. That God is too late. How often do we feel that God is too late in our life? I'm going to tell you after 34 years of walking with Jesus Christ and the Lord, I'll tell you this, God is never late. His timing is perfect every single time. Though I often don't understand it, it doesn't ever line up with my calendar and my schedule of events. God never emails me the agenda for the week, you know, but he's always perfect in his timing. You see, God waited for Lazarus to die. And you say, why? Because now the real climax is going to happen. For he then wept as he was approaching the tomb of Lazarus because people were wailing and crying and they were, you know, howling and they were just complete sorrow had gripped all of their hearts. And Jesus is weeping now. He's just weeping at the the effects of sin, I should say, the death and the sorrow that it has all caused. And not one of those people stopped for a moment to consider what he was capable of doing. But Jesus said this to one of the sisters just prior to raising Lazarus from the dead. He said, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks the question very poignantly, do you believe this? Do you trust this? Well, you know that as Jesus then got to the bottom of the gravesite, he stood in front of the tomb and he called Lazarus forward. And Lazarus came forward out of the tomb. I am convinced that if Jesus would have just said, come forward, all of the graves everywhere would have emptied. But Jesus calls him personally as God calls you personally. God is calling you personally to receive him as your savior. You are not a Christian simply because you grow up in America. You're not a Christian simply because you affiliate with a certain denominational Christian church. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. 
A Christian is one who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, has repented of their sins, and is following after Him. Do you have a moment in your life where you know for certain that you crossed over from death to life, from darkness to light? Do you have that birthday, let's say, that you remember that that unique experience with God where you came before Him, repented of your sins, and believed on Him for your eternal life, and seeing, therefore, your life-changing effort? Do you have that definitive moment in your life? Because you can have it today. That moment where God begins to work in you, where old things pass away and all things become brand new. Today can be that day for you. And then the resurrection of Jesus Christ will mean more than just some theological or abstract or academic notion. It'll be personal and real to you as an individual. God has made this way possible for you and I. And I believe that there are some here today that God is calling and say, will you not come to me? He will not force you. You have to turn to him, repent of your sin, and believe. I'm one of those people who chases sunsets and sunrises. I love states like Florida where I can see one in the morning and the other one at night. Then I discovered that there's this little place in Wisconsin called Door County where you can do the same. And I'm talking about watching it sunrise over the water and sunset over the water, sunset on the water. The sunrise is today before you and I. When the sun rises, the darkness flees. When the sun rises, the light illuminates. When the sun rises, there is a new beginning for us all. When the sun rises, fear fades and courage is ignited within us. When the sun rises, hope reigns throughout. When the sun rises, the victory has been secured. When the sun rises, you and I who are in Christ, we win. Happy Resurrection Day.